Hi guys, uh, welcome to our first episode of the INS podcast. Uh, I'm Katie Yale, Editor-in-Chief of Interiors and Sources Magazine. And I am Adrienne Thompson, writer and editor for the magazine. And what we want to do is really bring to you uh, some of the insights that we have in the design world. We are so lucky to be able to have these amazing conversations with people and we want to let you guys in. Um, and so today's we started out our first uh, episode with Beverly Willis. Um, she is very fascinating woman, <laughs> extensive background from writing to computer development to directing films. So very exciting to learn about her. She's very interesting person, very interesting person. It was so fascinating to be able to talk with her. Um, so she is now 90 years old um, and she started off as an artist and then became an architect. Uh, and so we really talked to her about her history, about uh, kind of what she's focused on in her life, and then the impact of her foundation on uh, particularly gender issues in architecture and design. So we hope that you all enjoy this interview with Beverly. Um, and if you have any questions or comments, please let us know. One of the things that I was really excited about, I fangirled over this entire interview. I thought it was going to be, you know, a nice 10 minute conversation to talk about the new film that she had out. And it turned into an hour long because it was just amazing to hear about her life and to hear what she was up to. Um, and so one of the things that's so eye opening is that one of the things that she says creates her ability to see things differently and to try new things. Um, even though she's, she's 90 years old and she's still creating films and she's still in this foundation that she's created, she's still doing all of these things. Um, as we'll hear later, she is addressing sexual harassment, um, and assault in, and the me too movement. And that's, you know, these are amazing things that she's doing. Um, but we kind of talked about like, how were you able to get to this point? And for her, it was really about starting off as, um, as an artist and to be able to see things outside the box compared to um, the ways that other people may see them. So uh, let's see here, we'll start with that. Well, you know, I, my, uh, my first career was as an artist, designer, uh, and I, I was a multimedia artist, and I have actually produced artwork using practically every medium uh, that there is. I started out as a fresco painter, uh -huh. and so uh, the. Uh, uh, my art has has really informed, you know, my whole life, my my architectural career, uh, and I, I think as an artist, uh, I I tend and 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 I didn't go to architectural school, you know, I just have a degree in art. I'm a licensed architect, you know, mind you, but. But as, as an artist, you know, I think that I tend to 
to uh, do things a little bit out of the box. Yeah. Uh, I'm not so constrained as as somebody who's been schooled in a long tradition of of following different architects from decade to decade. Uh, you know, for example. So. Uh, so it wasn't really too unusual for me to, you know, to take on the challenge of, uh, you know, filmmaking. And I've also written a book, so, you know, I have some writing background. Uh, uh, the um, uh, So anyway, I've now done, this is my fifth film, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I just found it fairly easy to do. So one of the things that I love about this portion of the interview is the fact that she says, I just find it easy to do. <laughs> She's a woman of multiple talents. Yeah. <laughs> we go from artist, writer, filmmaker, computer developer at one point. It's just, it's mind boggling. Yeah. Um. Something that I really loved about this interview was that uh, she never apologizes, and she also is very proud of her accomplishments. And, um, you know, in a way that people can get really defensive or insulted by, you know, the fact that she's like, well, yeah, it's just easy to do. You know, <laughs> I'm, I wasn't schooled in architecture, but. I wouldn't even say it was in an arrogant matter. Though. Yeah, it's no. just, you know, very casual. She's very confident mm-hmm. in her abilities. Clearly, I mean, it's cool. Mm-hmm. And as she and I were talking about it, she was saying, you know, she had had started off as uh, as an artist. And then, um, um, so one of the things that, uh, she doesn't really go into it, but what happened is that... <clears throat> She was a multimedia artist in Hawaii. Um, that multimedia um, aspect really kind of got her jobs in the retail market. So she was doing artwork for retail uh, locations. And then everything just evolves in her career, which is one of those, um, those things that... I think a lot of fear keeps people from from just going like, of course, this will evolve into me becoming an architect because I was doing the art for retail. Um, I think one of the most important pieces of information or, or advice that I ever got was in high school, our choir class was, uh, we had a couple from um, Broadway come in and talk to us and they said, uh, you know, they take this from improv, but anytime they were asked, can you do this? They would say yes. And then they'd figure out how to do it. And so like, they didn't know how to rollerblade, but they both said that they could rollerblade. They got the parts and then they had to go learn how to rollerblade before starting the play. And that really sounds so similar to what she's doing here saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm an artist. So of course I'd start doing interior design. Then of course that means that I'm going to start doing architecture. And because of that, of course I'm going to start writing a book and then of course I'm going to be asked, you know, to do this thing and I'm going to figure out how to become a filmmaker. Um, Would you say there's like an overarching theme to all the work she's done? I'm like how everything is kind of tied along together. 
I think, honestly, and this is going to sound a little cheesy, but um, the theme of her work has often looked like just it. It's her, you know, she designs for her own individual uh, personality. Um, and that doesn't mean that she's not looking at ways of being able to work with that space, but it's really, as she, as she notes, outside the box. Um, <clears throat> well, and then kind of going into, you just highlighted the Me Too movement, for example, earlier. She seems cause-oriented in mm-hmm. some of the work that she does. So could you just explain that to me so I know more about it from like what she has done and how her work's tied into particular movements such as the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that's really groundbreaking um, about Beverly is that she started in the, so interior design basically didn't exist. You know, um, working as a multimedia artist is, uh, you know, on interiors, that's considered art at this time, interior design as a field didn't really exist. Um, and there still to this day is a lot of confusion about what interior design is. Is it just decorating? You know, oftentimes you say to a friend outside the industry, oh yeah, I'm, I work in interior design. And suddenly they're like, what color should I paint my walls? Okay. Well, it's a lot more than that. And, um, it's definitely more than that. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, especially with, you know, wellness and health and, education, knowing that like what kind of environment children are in, it, it matters. Yeah. So, and so what she, so she came in, uh, to interior design in a time when it didn't exist. And then she started working in architecture, um, in a time in which women architects didn't really exist. Um, women were actually kept from getting, um, the schooling that they needed for architecture. Uh, one thing that a lot of people always talk about the Bauhaus and how, progressive it was because they allowed women in, which is true, but they only allowed women into their crafts section. So the women were only allowed to really do like weaving. There's um, still constraints within. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Definite constraints where it's like, yeah, look at us. We invite women in. They're going to work on the looms. And we still fight that today where it's like textile design is very complicated and, but it's still in our brains relegated to this, this craft section. Um, that, you know, it, it is gendered. Um, but then as she explains, uh, a little bit later on here, what she ended up doing is in the, and we can listen to that in just a moment, but what she's talking about is in the post-war period, uh, World War II, <clears throat> um, the suburbs started to be created. And at this point, uh, it's mostly, white families who are moving out to the suburbs. But before that, you either lived in a farm in a rural community or you lived in a city. And so to create the suburbs, which were really just kind of, it was almost like city overflow. (laughs) Like you lived in the suburbs and then you drove into work. Um, And so as she describes in a little bit here, she was one of the first people to use computer software in the 1970s to be able to map out space. Um, she'll describe it, but before that, you basically walked the land and you said, okay, great, here's an acre. This is what we're going to do with it. Um, but when you're looking at 
hundreds and hundreds of acres, that's basically impossible. So she was one of the first people to really get out there and uh, use computer software. And then um, a little bit later, we'll listen to her uh, explain the fact that uh, she was one of the first architects to actually you create um, to redesign buildings for for different uses. Um, before that, you just tear down the building, build a new one. Um, and so it seems like such a waste. It seems silly oh, yeah. that and you wouldn't is, repurpose them. You know, this is one of those things that I always think is so honestly kind of just bonkers whenever people are talking about um, the good old days <laughs> is that one of the things is that uh, the post-war period was so wasteful. We had all of a sudden we were using plastics for the first time and in, in consumer ways. And um, we were really just kind of taking over space and it really seemed like there was no end to our growth in sight, but it was also without any kind of research to back up what we were actually doing. So, um, but let's take a listen here about um, kind of the drivers. I asked her about the drivers that she has to, what causes her to really want to work towards these things. Um, and then she explains a little bit more about her career. Well, you know, I basically like challenges mm -hmm. and I like, uh, uh, not only challenges, but, uh, I consider it sort of solving problems. Uh, uh, for example, um, uh, I and my firm developed the first computer software in the country for large-scale land use planning. Mm -hmm. And that was back in 1971, before Bill Gates established Microsoft. As a matter of fact, Bill Gates was still writing computer software for IBM. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it was also before the invention of the desktop computer. Um, so, you know, developing software in-house was, a, again, a very pioneering move. That kind of cracks me up, though, because, like, it's before desktop computers. That means that it's, like, those banks in entire rooms that, like, yeah. I love her Bill Gates reference, yeah. too. <laughs> But I almost oh, like Bill how Gates. she says he's uh, <laughs> like kind of like, hey, I'm still working. He's still working, too. You yeah. know, don't let age stop you type of thing. Yeah. Um, but I love that. Like, oh, yeah, I created this software, which now in the time of app development where little kids are like, I'm learning how to code. And it's oh, like, gosh. that's amazing. Um, but, you know, for people to realize, like she was creating software for computers that sometimes didn't even have a screen. It sounds foreign to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason that we we literally had, in my mind, we really had to develop this instrument to help us uh, uh, do our our work is because we were doing uh, large scale housing development, mm -hmm. and this was in the era uh, when suburbs were just beginning. Uh, you know, the roads were being built and and so the cars could go out to a suburb and and so the suburbs were just beginning and 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 suburbs you know typically are made up 
of large-scale developer developments that then merge together into, you know, first a neighborhood and then a town. Uh, and and as long as the builders were working with flat land, there was very few problems. But the moment that they started building on hillsides and hiring us to do these plans and do this building, I mean, do the design of buildings uh, on on these hillsides, uh, this is when uh, we face the issue of the flooding and the mudslides and and you know which were very destructive and also people were killed uh, uh, so it, it, you know obviously one had and also in 1969 the Environmental Protection Act was passed mm -hmm. so that meant that we had to pay attention to, you know, all of the flora, fauna, uh, uh, and the different types of protections for wildlife or birds, or and and we had to, you know, preserve as much land as possible. So, uh, what uh, you know. Prior to these large developments, and when I first hung out my shingle, prior, it was back in the days when buildings were on small lots. Mm -hmm. Even tall buildings were on small lots, and and you could you were taught to walk the land so that you had a feeling for the land. You could walk it and have a feeling for it, but. But when you're dealing with hundreds of acres, um, like our developments were, you, you couldn't walk the land and memorize it. It just wasn't humanly possible. So, so our our computerized program, which we call CARLA, our computerized approach to residential land analysis, uh, enabled us to have a very detailed analysis of the land, its slopes, uh, and we could do per perspectives of the land, and, and we could identify buildable land and unbuildable land, and so that we could begin to have some really tangible knowledge of where to place buildings, you know, on the land. What city is she in when she's discussing this? Is she East Coast, West Coast? Mm. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Because um, I know, like you said, at one point she's Hawaii, I think, San Francisco at one point. Mm -hmm. So I'd be interested to know if she, what city she's talking about. Well, a lot of the suburbs that were being created were on the East Coast. Um, that's, that's what I would assume. Yeah, that's of. where you kind of saw um, uh, Levittown in particular is um, a really famous development, which there are several of them. And, it, um, and basically they were the first suburb. Uh, they started out, I believe in Pennsylvania and New York. Um, but creating around those Eastern centers for the most part. Um, but I'm not sure where exactly she's speaking about. Um, I know that she does speak about, uh, working in San Francisco. She's done a lot of work in San Francisco. So there's, 
that chance, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, Something for me to look up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one thing that I thought was really cool about this, that, so like the walking the land, um, that's so interesting to me because it is that kind of intuitive nature of design. Um, I feel that de design is something like, there are people who are naturally good at it, but it can't all be intuitive. Um, and she talks about like, they're building these spaces and people are dying because they don't know the research about that space, you know, and especially when they're building into hills. And so what I love is that she's talking about that intuitive nature mixed with the science and research because mm -hmm. <laughs> that creates good design is to, to be able to say like, okay, I kind of have this feeling about this space, but it's almost like do the science first and then mm -hmm. your intuition will take you from there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the next part here is about the, the way that she kind of expanded on her architectural role, uh, while in San Francisco. Uh, you know, I'm also part of uh, the two or three people who really started the post-World War II concept of adaptive reuse mm -hmm. of buildings because up to that point, you just tore buildings down yeah. and you built new buildings. You didn't, you didn't keep any old buildings. Uh, and I'm not even talking about historical buildings. I'm just talking about older buildings. And, mm -hmm. and you just tore, you know, you bulldozed them down and you built a new building. Well, uh, I was hired to do this project, uh, which essentially um, the owners thought to tear the building down and, uh, and, and build a new one. And that was my instructions. But the problem was is that there wasn't enough land uh, to meet the parking requirements of the city. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of a dilemma. We couldn't uh, build new because we didn't have enough land to accommodate both an economically feasible uh, retail building mm -hmm. and at the same time uh, park the cars. Yeah. So uh, I came up with this idea of, of reusing the building, and they were three little Victorian buildings that were in pretty bad shape. Um, and to, to make the project economically feasible, I came up with this idea of building, of jacking the existing buildings up and building an entire floor underneath the existing building. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and it worked out fantastically well yeah. uh, because we were able to uh, uh, remodel and, and restore, you know, the existing Victorians mm -hmm. and, and still have the square footage necessary, you know, for an economically feasible investment mm -hmm. on the part of the owners. So, uh, but th that was the uh, prototype, so to speak, of what became Union Street. And coming from San Francisco, you know Union Street. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, at, at the time that we did this work in 1890, Union Street, uh, it was 
being taken over by developers who were tearing down all the old buildings and building the most ugly three-story uh, apartment buildings mm -hmm. uh, because the general area at that point was sort of a low, lower income area uh, at the foot of Knob Hill. So, so, you know, so once again, you know, I was motivated by, you know, trying to solve uh, a problem. Yeah, I think, you know, when she's going on about Union Street, um, <clears throat> for those who aren't so familiar with, uh, with San Francisco, it's, if you do know, you know, like, the loop in Chicago, or you know Union Square in New York, um, that's really, it's, it's the downtown of downtown, mm -hmm. basically. Um, it's where you're you're going to be finding all of these huge high-priced buildings now, and especially going up to Knob Hill. Um, so I thought this was fascinating um, coming from San Francisco and then hearing her say like, oh yeah, you know, I just took these three Victorians. Jacked them up. Yeah, jacked them <laughs> up, squished them together. <laughs> and it helped to develop the space. Um, one of the, one of the things that some people may not know is that um, I don't know how old the buildings were that she was working with at this time, but the 1906 earthquake, on top of the fact that everyone just got rid of buildings anyway, um, the 1906 earthquake decimated the city um, between the earthquake itself and then the fires which which happened afterwards, and you know an earthquake of that size, especially with um, the, the way that water was able to be run through the city at that time, um, made us so that there really wasn't any water to put out these fires. Um, I have, I actually have original photographs from that time that maybe we should put up online, um, to go along with this. But so what ended up happening is that really at the end of the day, once they, they calmed everything down and they started to push the rubble out into the sea, there was so much just, the, it, the city was destroyed. Like, so they actually ended up pushing the debris out into the sea and into the bay. Um, if you look at a map of pre-1906 uh, and post-1906, dramatic uh, transformation. It's a huge, yeah. it's a huge difference. It's, um, so just know if you're on the beach, you're, you're probably on some old rubble. Uh, but at the end of the day, there were only really two blocks of original Victorian houses. So when you think of San Francisco, you think of those Victorian houses, like full house, the outside of that house. That oh, is, yes. yeah, okay. <laughs> that is a queen, queen Anne style. I'm getting a good picture here yeah. now. Yeah. So, you know, that's so iconic to San Francisco except for they really just, they built these, uh, this look back up, but none of them are original. Um, and so to hear that, but that's what you have, what she's talking about is you have these three Victorian houses. So imagine three of full house, houses. full house houses, which the inside, there's no way that that was logical at all. I lived in a place that looked just like that. And it was half that size. Um, but so like, three full house houses, jacked them up, 
added. <laughs> and I'm trying to picture it, especially in the 70s. Is that when? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to, with technology back then, too, how that worked. Yeah. And then combined those buildings. And it was really one of the first. Um, well, was that something they did often? Was Jack buildings up back then, too? I mean, oh, no. I, I love that. <laughs> You know, you don't probably see women architects often. And then here she comes along with this idea that people might not do as often. No, not like a woman architect comes in, refuses to break down and rebuild because they just can't. So then she jacks up three buildings and then combines them and reuses them in a retail manner. It's great. Yeah. It's, you know, I don't know. That's what it is, right? Like trying to figure out answers to these issues. Um, but one of the things that we ended up chatting about, and actually the first reason why I, I called Beverly is the fact that um, we I had been seeing her name and her foundation popping up a lot this year. Um, in particular about, they had a panel, um, which uh, we actually wrote about uh, what is the name of her foundation, too? The Beverly Willis Architectural Foundation. Okay, thank you. And it really was started uh, in the early 2000s. Um, she and three other women paired up together, and they really kind of realized that women were missing from the architecture books. Um, and she asks a question that I love, yeah. too. So. Yeah, so let's just jump into that here. One of my favorite questions I like to ask, uh, particularly men, but also women, is can you name five women architects? Mm -hmm. And and typically, uh, you can, you know, nowadays people will name Zaha Hadid, they, uh, 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 Oh gosh, the California architect uh, Julia Morgan, and uh, and of course uh, the woman who wrote uh, the life and death of American cities. Uh, I'm having trouble with middle block, you know, Jane Jacobs. So uh, uh, you know, those are sort of the names that pop up. But once they get past that. Uh, Oh, yes, the other one is probably Maya Wen. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you get past that, uh, there's sort of a blank. Mm -hmm. And and so, uh, it, you know, clearly there's a great need for, uh, I would say, education, but more specifically, uh, a, a broader, wider awareness of the, the number of women that are doing, you know, extremely remarkable work. Uh, and, uh, and also uh, the other aspect of education for, for us is that one of our major founding principles was to, uh, uh, to see that women are referenced in the architectural history books because as of now, uh, uh, with the exception of maybe Jane Jacobs and uh, 
uh, and perhaps one other, uh, there are no references to women architects in the architectural history books. Mm -hmm. And of course, from an educational standpoint, that's pretty devastating because that means that each generation of young women architects who take architectural history courses in high school and college do not read about other women architects. Mm -hmm. So that they're robbed of role models and they're robbed of the rich history of women in, you know, architecture and design. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is great um, about this interview is that, you know, Beverly was one of those first architectural women, but her goal, and especially with, you know, her foundation, um, isn't to say like, hey, look at everything I've done. She's also very just matter of fact, like, yeah, of course I did this and this and this, of course, you know, like. It's like she's not worried about necessarily what she's done herself, but how it can impact and uplift and help others and just change the norm almost, you know? Yeah, exactly. That um, she's more interested about helping younger architects, female architects, especially to to have an easier time, you know, and, and I get I, a sense of just wanting to better the po world we live in. Yeah. And the people in it. And yeah. it's great. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think that's one of those um, collaborative things that maybe at times um, doesn't get the pages in the media. doesn't get highlighted because you know, drama sells, to be to be honest, I think everyone knows this, drama sells. But when you have someone who's not allowing herself to be part of the drama in, in a negative way, in a catty way, you know, because she isn't staying out of the drama, um, as we'll listen to in a little bit here. And as I've said before, her organization really is addressing Me Too um, and is addressing uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. So of course she's jumping straight into, you know, the issues, but not in a way that can play out in some sort of sitcom-y, you know. She's really like modern with all movements she's been through. Like mm -hmm. whatever the main issue is at the time, she's found a way to address it through her own path. In a very matter of fact way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, of course I did. Of course I jacked and up. In a, and in a creative way. Yeah. 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 So let's see here. Try to find. One of the, the concerns of the foundation has been the dropout of women uh, uh, from architecture. Uh, and uh, so that women... Uh, in the first 10 years after they've graduated from the university, uh, many of them are just leaving architecture completely. Yeah. And and for a number of years, we've been trying to figure out, you know, why that happened. Uh, uh, and so um, when the uh, when when this topic became uh, came up, it sort of you know dawned on us that maybe this was. Uh, these issues to uh, for this issue about women, you know, particularly we're even fighting about the women's right to choose yeah. as far as her bodily uh, 
respect her health and her, you know, her desires, whether or not to, you know, have children. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I would, I would hope, you know, that your generation will carry it on, uh, you know, and maybe see some fruition to some of these issues that, you know, really began in the 1800s, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I definitely believe that this stuff happened way before the 1800s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's been going on since the dawn yeah. time. Um, but, so what her foundation did was they actually, um, she is pushing AIA um, to better address the the issue of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, as she said, uh, you're seeing women leaving in the first 10 years. It's too easy to say, you know, sometimes you see, I hate saying, sometimes you see online, uh, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, they're, women are just choosing within the first 10 years to leave. And it's like. But they're okay. making that choice for a reason. So. Yeah. It's important to understand why. Why are they making these choices? Mm -hmm. You know, what factors are contributing to those choices? It's too reductive to and just say. It can't be something. personal yeah. for every single one of them. Clearly, <laughs> there's underlying. Yeah, the, the birth rate in, in America is going down, but women are leaving at a faster rate. So there's, yeah, there's no relation there. So yeah. I love that they are, they're addressing it. But as she ends up saying, um, and I, I think this is, uh, a portion that I didn't get on the recording, but she ends up saying that her belief is that um, men need to address this issue, that men need to create the safer workplaces. They need to call out other men. They need to make, uh, you know, a, a safer environment for women and that it can't be done with just women. And um, it, as much as I don't want to say this, a lot of power still resides with men. Mm -hmm. And so they need to be kind of the forerunners with change such as this. Yeah. Or not, we're definitely helping along the way. Yeah. So, so she is addressed, um, as she said, she's been addressing people that, Hey, the, the men need to, uh, need to step up and need to help with this. And sh they do have plenty of guys who are helping with, um, her foundation and, they ended up having a panel discussion, which I thought was uh, really fascinating. We'll put up a link to that um, article as well. So uh, in the show notes so that people can take a look at that. But, you know, there was a really just open discussion about sexual harassment. And um, is that the, the sexual harassment in the workplace panel discussion? Yeah. Okay. And because really we for the most part, we have some media that is asking the questions, but then the conversation seems to stop. Um, so I love that she's really kind of pushing this forward. Um, it's almost like you get to a point where, okay, we're talking about it. Mm -hmm. And like, people are happy that you're talking about it. And then it's like, someone needs to come along and take the next step. Okay. So we're talking about it. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. Well, what is it? Uh, uh, words without works is dead or <laughs> you guys know what I mean. I it's, <laughs> it's words, words without work works We're without a, faith, without action, 
Something like that. Something. Okay. We'll come back to you with that. Yeah, we'll come back with that. But, you know, it's kind of that idea of uh, you can't just talk about it. And that's what drives me nuts about social media is that people can just talk about it online and feel like they've done something. That doesn't, you're screaming into the void. Um, But she really wanted to make sure that we understood that they are first and foremost a research uh, foundation. And because of that, that aspect of it, she has, that's how she ended up being approached about these five different films over um, the span of the, the last, I believe, decade or so. The latest one came up from this idea of, can you tell me five women architects? And her foundation, when they were asked, uh, I believe by Guggenheim to create this, um, this film about women uh, in design, they pushed it further and said, do you think we can find a hundred women built spaces in New York city, just Manhattan. Um, And that could be contractors um, that could be architects, interior designers, uh, engineers, but what are a hundred buildings that women had a big hand in creating? Um, they ended up with, I believe, 300 uh, entries. And after going through them all, they rounded it out to about 240. And what she states uh, in the interview that I thought was just so beautiful is that as they start to, uh, they start pinning all of these places on a map. And what you see as her quote is that New York is blanketed in women built architecture. But, you know, when you're looking at architecture, it's not something you don't, you don't typically think about gender. Um, And so that film came out last month. You can find it online. Um, She actually, they have a digital version now that you can download. It's about $20. Um, All of the money, you know, goes to the foundation. Um, So that's the Beverly uh, Willis Architectural Foundation. So, uh, bwaf.org. Um, and I just, it was, it's absolutely stunning. It's about 20 minutes. Um, because a lot of these art films and films that are going to be shown in during events and in museums are not much longer than that. Uh, but they showcased it also at, uh, AIA this year. So, um, so if you're interested in that, definitely check it out. Um, but that comes to the end of our interview with Beverly. Um, Adrian, do you have any other questions? <laughs> As someone, and Katie, you know this well, I do not have a background in interior design, but I love hearing stories like this. This one, especially just because it really dived into the history of things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it was just a matter of fact history. <laughs> it was just, as you know, and, um, you know, my background's in architecture, uh, my master's in archi- or decorative art history and theory. Um, but she was still mentioning things where I'm like, wait, I have to research that. Wait, what? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the everyday lived lives. Um, and this is why it's important to get women into the architectural history books is that it adds so much. Um, you aren't telling the same story over and over again. So, um Well, thank you all so much for joining us on this first podcast. And we are so excited to be inviting you into 
uh, more of our conversations as we go along. And uh, please make sure to subscribe. Check us out on uh, interiorsandsources.com. Um, and then you can find us also on Instagram, Twitter, uh, interior source and